All right, the reading for this evening is John chapter 8, verses 21 to 30, which you can find on page 894 in those Blue Pew Bibles. John 8, verses 21 to 30. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Before we come to this passage, join me in prayer. Father in heaven, as we come to the beginning of the new year, um, our hearts are full both of excitement about what uh, lays before, before us and also some trepidation about what lays before us. Um, Father, we are grateful uh, to have been brought uh, safely into a new year um, and, and to be able to look with eager anticipation for the ways that you will care for us, the ways that you will grow us uh, as a people, the way you will deepen us in maturity and grow us more into the likeness of your Son. Father, we, uh, we pray that you would use these ordinary means uh, of grace, your word, your sacrament, um, reading the scriptures together, praying together, gathering as your people, um, just over the course of this next year, would you bless these things? Um, they seem mundane, ordinary, as it's what we call them. Uh, we access them each week, and yet each week you are faithful uh, to show up. You are faithful uh, to work in and through them uh, for our good. Uh, Father, we, we ask uh, that, you, that you would do this, and, and we're grateful um, to know that you've already promised uh, that you will. Father, we, we want to lift up uh, our world to you um, and, and our particular corner of it. Uh, you know that we had certainly hoped to come into a new year, um, more and more putting the pandemic uh, behind us, um, and, and yet it is, it is still with us, uh, and we are weary. Um, we know that there are many, uh, at least a few in our congregation who are right now directly uh, impacted, either uh, sick themselves or with loved ones. And Father, we pray uh, that you would be with them. We, we pray that you would heal. Um, we pray that the cases would be mild. Uh, we pray that you would bring them back uh, into our midst uh, and, and quickly. Father, we know that you can take this away in an instant. Uh, and in your providence, you've chosen not to do that. Uh, instead, you have, um, you have given us uh, 
many different means uh, to uh, address this, whether it's um, uh, through the work of, of doctors and healthcare professionals, um, and, and just through the, the wisdom uh, that you call each of us to exercise uh, in, in making decisions for ourselves, for our families, um, for our neighbors, for our schools and classrooms, um, for our workplaces. Um, these things can, can weigh heavy uh, on our shoulders, but it's really no different than the way you have always called us uh, to steward your world. Uh, you have always called us uh, to take up positions of authority um, and, to, and, and to work as stewards uh, in, in your world. And so we pray, Father, uh, because we're weary, um, because, we just <clears throat> because we just want this to go away, we pray uh, that you would give us strength, uh, that we would not tire of doing good for ourselves, for our families, for our neighbors. Um, enable us, please, uh, with wisdom uh, to, uh, to be faithful, uh, to, uh, to love them. Um, Father, we particularly do lift up uh, those uh, who are in leadership, um, nationally, state, local, government, um, leading in school districts, um, leading uh, companies um, who have that, that extra burden. Would you give them wisdom um, that they would make decisions well uh, with, with mercy and with justice? Um, Father, we are grateful uh, that we can hand all of this uh, over to you. Um, and know that in the midst of us, you are in the midst of it. You are near. Um, that you uh, care uh, for the weary, uh, for the brokenhearted, uh, for the sick. Um, help, as we often pray, uh, for our love to be your love uh, in the world. That that the way that we would act uh, would reflect your love uh, for this world. Father, as we come to this passage now, I ask, as always, that you would send your Spirit that you would uh, illuminate our hearts and our minds. Help us to see um, what it is that you would have us um, glean uh, from these words as we once again are drawing near to the gospel um, and hearing the words of your son, uh, Jesus, that he spoke um, in, his, in his years walking among us. Um, Father, uh, I ask uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I think you've heard both me and Bradley say that one of the things that we most enjoy uh, about pastoring together is the opportunity to get together each week uh, to look at the text, uh, to pray uh, for the church, to pray for you, to pray for each other, um, and to talk about what we're seeing um, and how, we're, how, how the text is, is developing. Um, because of holiday travel uh, and such, we haven't been able to do that the past couple weeks, um, but I was pretty excited uh, when I listened to Bradley's sermon from last week. The, the first one, um, now as we're returning to the Gospel of John, having finished our study of the fear of the Lord, our time in Job, um, we're back uh, in the Gospel of John, and I was pretty excited uh, to hear that he and I were thinking along very similar lines. Um, like him, uh, I know he said this last week, um, I am really excited that we're coming back into this passage, uh, into John chapter 8 in particular, um, having looked at the fear of the Lord, 
having looked at Job, I feel like there are, there are things that we have learned uh, and seen in these past months that are going to carry through uh, into, these, uh, into, this, into this study. Um, and in particular, um, if there was one fear of the Lord passage that jumped out at me, um, it was that one that actually wasn't from Job. Uh, it was from Jeremiah, right? We actually referred to this several, I think we preached it multiple times. Um, Jeremiah 32, uh, this, was, this was from the, the last sermon uh, that we did in Job. Remember what God says in, in Jeremiah 32 as he's um, just enumerating the promises of the new covenant, right? He says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And, and again, we've said this before, but what really makes that stand out to me, what's so arresting about those verses is that when you hear the Bible talking about God, right, the, the eternal, unchanging, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal creator God doing anything with all of his heart and with all of his soul, that, that language should make you stop and take notice. Um, that is arresting language. That is significant language. And the fact that what it is that God is going to do with all his heart and his soul is to do us good, to put the fear of him in our hearts so that we won't turn from him, uh, to plant us in the land in faithfulness. Um, that just jumped out at me, that we, that we get that intimate of an insight into God's heart for his people. Um, as we're returning to the Gospel of John, uh, we are thick in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having, the chief point of which is that Jesus reveals the Father. So this is the other thing I heard Bradley say last week. Um, last week he said that the main points of his sermon, um, and, and I heard him say, kids, if you're going to write something down on that sucker challenge page, this is the thing to write down. Uh, Jesus reveals the Father, and as he reveals the Father, he also exposes our hearts. Jesus is the light of the world. He said that in verse 12. And that light reveals the Father to us, reveals the Father's heart, and at the same time exposes our hearts. I think that's probably the point of my sermon today also, and it might be the point of the next few. Um, because in chapter 7 and 8, of John, um, that is what Jesus is saying. Um, it's one extended conversation in which Jesus is saying as many different ways as he possibly can, and he just gets more and more audacious until at the end of it, he's, 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 he's twisting grammar to say, listen, before Abraham was, I am. We'll come to that in a few weeks. Um, he's just again and again saying, if you want to know the Father, if you want to see God, if you want to know the Father's heart for you, you have to look at me. Um, and as you do, your hearts will be exposed. Not in a way that will drive you in a, away, but in a way that invites you to draw nearer. Um, let's take a look then 
at, at how it is that Jesus is saying this uh, in these verses that we read uh, today. Uh, we read verses 21 uh, to 30. So again, remember the context. Um, this is the, the, this, the, the festival of booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, right? So Bradley talked last week. He reminded us about how there's all this, um, you know, it's a seven-day-long party. Um, there's all this really, really dramatic imagery that's meant to remind the people of God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness, right? So every day of this festival, the priests are pouring gallons of water uh, onto the altar. So it's flowing out, right, and reminding them of that promise in Ezekiel about rivers of living water flowing out of the temple, right, and reminding them of the water that God provided in the wilderness. And Jesus, in the middle of that, says, if you're thirsty, come to me. Right? Come to me for living water. I will cause rivers of living water to flow from you. And John adds that he was talking about the Holy Spirit when he said that. And then there's also the light. Right? There's these huge torches uh, illuminating this, this, this whole scene. Um, light shining in the darkness in a way that we have a hard time really imagining. Right? Because we, we don't live in a very dark place. Not really. Um, my family spent uh, part of our Christmas holiday in Linden, Washington, which is this little farming town right below the Canadian border. Um, it's far enough north, they get about an hour less daylight uh, per day than, than we do at this time of the year. The sun comes up at about 8 o'clock. Um, and before it comes up, it is dark. Um, and the first thing that my son said uh, when we got back uh, we're, we're driving home from the airport, and he looks around and goes, man, I forgot how much light pollution there is here. Just forget how much light there is in Boston all the time. Um, this was not a place with lots of light pollution. These lights that are shining in the darkness uh, would have been dazzling, would have been blinding. And in that context, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Right? So he has the audacity already to be saying, everything going on in this festival Reminding you of, God, of God's faithfulness, that's all pointing at me. And now he has the audacity to say this. Verse 21, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Um, that last comment there is a good example of uh, John very frequently uses irony. He frequently has people say things that are much more true than they know. Um, like when the high priest, uh, just before Jesus is executed, uh, Caiaphas says it's better that one man should die for the nation than that we should all die. And all he means is, you know, it, it, it's better for this one person to be put to death in order to quell the political unrest uh, so that the rest of us will be safe. He has no idea that he's talking about a death that's going to atone for the sins of the world. Um, so it's much more true than, than, than he knows. Um, and something similar is going on uh, here with, with what the Jews say. But what Jesus says about, I'm going away and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin, I think this makes more sense in the context of this festival, right? Um, this festival has all these symbols that are reminders of God's faithfulness 
in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying, those things were pointing at me. Um, without water, without a pillar of light to follow, the people of Israel would have wandered until they were dead, right? Without water, they would die. Uh, without light to follow, they would be hopelessly lost. Jesus is saying, those things were pointing at me. Um, I am that water. Uh, if you don't come to me, if you don't follow me, um, then you will be hopelessly lost. You will wander. You will die uh, in your sins. What does he mean by that? I think this is the question uh, that we need to ask ourselves. What is it that is standing in the way of them following him? Standing in the way of coming to him uh, for living water. What is it that would be in the way of us? following Jesus as the light of the world, seeking living water from him. The next thing Jesus says is, verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Here I think Jesus helps us see what it is that's standing in the way. But he also offers a solution. So on the one hand, he says, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Um, I want to be clear that what's going on here is not um, uh, some kind of a condemnation of the material creation. Um, the Gospel of John, because of it, it has more of a focus on the divinity of Christ. Sometimes we say it has a very high Christology. Um, it's probably the Gospel that's easiest to read in kind of a dualistic fashion. You know, as though when Jesus talks about um, not being of this world, he's offering a salvation that would pull us out of, of this world. Um, but remember, that, that doesn't flow with... Um, with what the gospel says about who Jesus is and what he's, and what he's done. He is the word made flesh. Uh, he is the one uh, who is tasting our full humanity. He's the one who, even after he's put to death, he's going to be raised in the same body, the same physical material body. Changed, yes. Glorified, yes. But still earthly, physical. Um, this isn't a condemnation of the material world. When, when John says, when John talks about the world, or sometimes it's the flesh, he'll use that phrase too, um, he's not talking about physical material. He's talking about the way the world works um, in a way that's opposed to the kingdom, in a way that's opposed to God. So it's, it's the system of the world. It's the logic um, of the world. It's a world um, in which conflict is basic, um, a, a world of zero-sum game, um, a world in which might makes right, in which the strong prey on the weak, uh, a world in which each of us ultimately is on our own, uh, where we have to fend for ourselves, um, a world in which we're all tempted to believe that lie that the devil tells us, uh, that God doesn't love us, that he won't or can't take care of us, 
Uh, and so ultimately, we're on our own. It's a world of scarcity. Um, and I think when Jesus says to his hearers, and we should ask ourselves uh, whether this applies to us, when he says, you are of this world, essentially what he's saying is you have bought into the lie. You are far too comfortable with the way that this world works. You have assimilated uh, into this system. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, this, is, this, is, this is kind of a silly example um, that I ran across in the past weeks, but I think it's an example of you know, one of the ways that we tend to assimilate, we tend to um, fit ourselves into, uh, in this case, a world of scarcity rather than a world of abundance. Um, so I learned a new word in the past year. You get to the end of the year, there's always these lists about like what are the words of the year. Well, one word that I learned that's not COVID-related, at least not directly, I don't think. Um, it's actually not a word, it's an acronym. It's NFT. You guys know what an NFT is? It's a non-fungible token. Uh, I will now attempt to explain what a non-fungible token is, and some of you can correct me later because I don't get it. Um, if you have a digital work of art, Right, so it could be a picture, it could be a song, you know, but it's, 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 it's a file, right? Um, you can make a copy of that thing, and for all intents and purposes, like, those two things are identical, those two copies, right? So then this presents a problem, because how can you own something that can just be copied infinitely many times? If I have a painting on the wall, a physical painting, I put it on my wall, it's not on your wall, right? So I can say I own this painting, but if it's a digital, copy of that same painting. Well, now the thing can just be copied. So how do I know that I own it? How can I say that I own it? And that's where the NFT comes to the rescue. It's just a little bit of code that identifies like this one is the one. Maybe it's the original, maybe it's not the original, but it's, it's, it's the one and you now own the right to say, I own this digital work of art. Um, I have the right to sell it to someone else. I and I alone, you know, have that. Um, where I ran across this, it was in this, it was in this article about how apparently uh, in video games, uh, you know, for, for some time people are willing to pay real money for digital um, weapons, right, in Fortnite, like that, that kind of thing. Um, well, how do you keep those things from just being copied? Ah, NFTs. Um, and, and what occurred to me as I read this was, here's an example where, in a sense, we didn't have scarcity. You know, we, we, we had something that could be just copied as many times as you want. It could just be as abundant as you want it to be. We didn't have scarcity, and so we had to invent it. Because um, we didn't know how to deal with that. Um, that's a silly example. Well, it's not. It's a weird example, I'll just put it that way. But, but deeper than that, think about the garden again. The garden is a world of abundance. Adam and Eve had absolutely everything that they could possibly want. There was one thing that was scarce. God said, don't eat from that tree. And Satan got them to focus on that. That was the thing that drew their attention. And in getting them to focus on that scarcity, 
Ultimately, what he was doing was getting them to focus on God's stinginess, or what they perceived to be God's stinginess. Why is he holding this back from you? And that seemed to be the way that their hearts wanted to go. And I would suggest that our hearts aren't that different. Um, when Jesus says to his listeners, you are of this world, and you're in danger of dying in your sin, wandering about, um, I think one of the ways that we can hear that is to say that our hearts are primed to believe that what we need is scarce, that God is stingy. Our hearts are not primed to go to Jesus and see the heart of the Father revealed for us, the heart of the one who, with all his heart and soul, will rejoice over us and will do us good. That's the problem. I said that Jesus also offers a solution because he says this. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Only the word he isn't actually there. When he says I am he, the, the he is stuck in to kind of make the grammar work. But all he really says is, unless you believe that I am a lot of you know that in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am, several times. Uh, he says, I am the light of the world. We had that last week. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, there are other places where he just says, I am. Like before Abraham was, I am. And when he says that, this is kind of the most audacious thing of all, where he actually takes on himself the name that God revealed to Moses. Unless you believe what he's saying is, unless you believe that when you look at me, you are seeing the great I am himself. You're seeing what God is like. Unless you can believe that, then you'll die in your sins. And what that means for them, what it would mean for us, it's the same thing that it meant for Moses when God first revealed that name to him. It means liberation. It means freedom. It means freedom from scarcity. It means freedom from the logic of this world where things are zero-sum and we all have to make our own way and fend uh, for ourselves. My favorite verses from the whole Exodus story come really early, the very end of chapter 2. It's actually before God. Uh, has called Moses. It says right at the end of chapter 2, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let me ask you, sitting here tonight, do you believe that God sees you? Do you believe that God remembers? Do you believe that God remembers his covenant, that he is in fact that God who makes an everlasting covenant and who with all his heart and soul will put the fear of him into us and do us good? 
Do you believe that God sees you and that God knows? That you are known? It's in believing that that we're set free. The Jews responded to Jesus. Who are you exactly? What it says is, so they said to him, who are you? But I have to think the intonation is more like, wait, who are you? Who are you saying that you are? What did you just say? And Jesus said to them, continuing in verse 25, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. When he says what I've been telling you from the beginning, that that could mean, you know, from the beginning of this conversation or from the beginning of my ministry. Um, It could also mean from the very beginning, right? In the beginning, the word was with God. And that word became flesh. And that word, Hebrews tells us, is God's final word. That word is greater than the prophets. That word reveals everything that God wants us to know about who he is. Um, Another of the crazy, audacious things that Jesus says, not in John, but in in Matthew's gospel, he says this about the prophets. Um, It's in Matthew 23, which is, that's a rough chapter. Matthew 23 is the one with all the woes to the Pharisees. He's calling them a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. He's really not pulling his punches. And along the way, he just kind of lets slip. He says, you know, I sent you all these prophets, and you didn't listen to them. You killed them all. He just kind of says that. And you want to stop and say, wait, you sent the prophets? You're the one who sent us Isaiah? You, you sent us Jeremiah? You were, you were the one behind the ones who then prophesied about your coming? How does that work? But this is the crazy, audacious thing that Jesus is saying, that to see him uh, is to see the Father. In verse 29, I think it is. No, in 28. um, He says, I do nothing on my own authority. I want to point out that a better translation of that is simply to say, I do nothing of myself. Um, The word authority uh, isn't there. And in some ways, it it takes away from what Jesus is actually saying. Um, He says, I do nothing of myself. I speak just as the Father taught me. What he's saying is simply this. There's not two gods. There's one God. The God that I reveal to you, the God that I am, is the same as the Father. The only way to him uh, is, is through me. The last thing for us to notice from this passage, the last thing for us to ask is, all right, so how do we come to this one? How, how, how do we follow him? How do we follow the light? How do we seek water uh, from, from this one? Um, And the danger, of course, is for us to think that it's a matter of putting into practice what he says, that that's that's the means to get to him. 
Um, doing what he says is important. Um, but that's not how we get to him. And that's important for us to know. I guess especially this time of year, people are making resolutions left and right. Or maybe you're past all that. Um, but Jesus tells us something really important about what it means to follow him and what we need to do. More importantly, what we need to see. He said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Whenever John talks about the Son of Man being lifted up, there's always this double meaning that on the one hand, it's talking about Jesus being exalted, but more importantly, it's talking about him being lifted up on the cross. When John talks about Jesus revealing God's glory, he's always talking about the cross. He gets really explicit about that in chapter 12. Um, and that's just another crazy thing. That the place where God's glory is most fully revealed, the place where we most clearly see the Father in the Son, is on the cross. And that's another thing that we have a hard time really getting our heads around because we've, we've grown so used to the, the cross being, um, you know, a religious symbol. We're used to it. Um, you have to remember the cross meant shame. It meant humiliation. It meant torture. Um, it would be like saying you have to look at someone being waterboarded. You know, and I... It makes me uncomfortable to say that. It makes you kind of uncomfortable to think about that. And that's, and that's the point. That is what it would have been like to see the cross. Uh, it meant all of that uh, and more. But when we look at the cross, because there's just one God, it's important for us to know that what we're seeing is not a vengeful, angry father punishing an unwilling son there in our place. What we're seeing is the shared and unanimous love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for us, for you. Um, what we're seeing in the cross is exactly the lengths to which God went to do good for us, to put the fear of us, fear, fear of him into our hearts with all of his heart and soul. That is, that is what that means that he held nothing back, that he was willing to go to those lengths. So the invitation is here at the end. It says that as Jesus was saying these things, even though they were crazy and audacious and even scandalous, it says many believed in him. And, and you'll remember from last year when we, when we went through John, uh, that John tells us that the whole purpose of his book, in chapter 20, he says, the reason I've written all of this is so that you might believe, and in believing, have eternal life. So the invitation is for us to go to Jesus, to see him as the light that we need, who will illuminate the heart of the Father for us, to drink that living water, to have rivers of living water flow out of us for the good of the world. We need God's Spirit for any of that to happen. Uh, let's not kid ourselves. Um, 
We need God's Spirit to work in us. So, would you join me in praying that he would do just that?